I should know this, but is that Valentine's Day? It's close. Right? No, it's February 14th is Valentine's <laughs> Day, it's Carl. Always, it's not like Thanksgiving that's on like the You better put that on your day. calendar to <laughs> yeah, send you your wife see, some um, flowers. Yeah. This is the AWC City Voice podcast, where we explore the issues that impact Washington cities. Welcome to season two. I'm Emma Shepard, and I've got a good show for you today. I've got Candace and Carl from our government relations team here, and we're going to dive into our seven city legislative priorities for 2020. And stay tuned to the very end of the episode, where we'll make some fun predictions about what's to come in the next couple of months. Candace, tell us a little about what you guys expect this session. Well, we expect it to be short and stick to that 60-day time frame. I think that's kind of the biggest piece. And we've been telling folks to manage their expectations uh, because it is a short session. It is um, a, only a supplemental budget year, which means they're not going to be doing, they're not likely to be doing any big budget rewrites. Um, and that they are going to be entering their own campaign season. So they're going to be looking at all of their actions during the legislative session with their campaign lens uh, in mind. And so I think it's that's where I'm coming from is let's manage our expectations. We want to get our messages out and make some progress where we can, but um, keep our expectations realistic. Carl, do you have anything to add to that? No, I would just, you know, underscore the the point about the fact that it's a election year and it's particularly it's a presidential election year, which tends to put even higher focus on that sort of uh, thinking. So everybody that I've been talking to is also, uh, you know, believing that this is going to, you know, finish on time and uh, don't expect a lot of controversial, um, you know, taxes and that sort of revenue. And some of those discussions will probably be uh, punted until 2021. We're going to segue into talking about the seven priorities that AWC adopted to focus on this year. Can you talk a little bit about what the process was to select those priorities? Yeah, we have a big agenda this year, um, given that we just said we're trying to manage expectations and uh, we aren't sure that they will accomplish um, a whole lot of big things. We still have a big legislative agenda for cities for this year. But that's really so that we can talk about the things that are important to cities and in some cases perhaps um, prepare for 2021 when they will be writing another biennial budget. So we have a process using our Legislative Priorities Committee, which is made up of over 40 official city officials from around the state. They come together over the spring and summer and make recommendations, talk about the issues that are important to cities, uh, make those recommendations to the AWC board. And the AWC board adopts the final list of priorities at the end of September. So uh, there's a lot of input that goes into it, a lot of process that comes uh, with that to come up with those seven priorities that we have for 2020. Yeah, one of the things that we did uh, this this go around that we don't always do is break into subcommittees, for instance, and dive even deeper on some of the issues. So we had a group of, uh, a smaller group of that 40 member committee that met on affordable housing issues, for instance, and talked about everything from tenants' rights to local revenues to some of the missing middle and zoning type issues that we know are going to come up. And that was a means to get real more, you know, a little bit more detailed feedback and really dig into some specific issues. And we brought that uh, approach across a variety of topics this, this go around. We like to say that local decision making and preemption is one of our overarching priorities year after year. Talk about what that means for cities and what you focus on when you talk about it with legislators. We really highlight the importance of local decision making. Uh, locally elected officials, city officials um, are tasked by their community. They're chosen by their community to lead them to make decisions to reflect the values of their community. 
And that is something that we ask the legislature to respect and not substitute their um, their decision making for that local decision making by individuals who um, are directly responsible and di- directly representing our city officials. So, um, so that's where we really try to make that case and encourage the legislature to avoid preempting that local decision making. Yeah, I like to use a lot of <clears throat> just sort of examples. You know, you have uh, little cities in the southwest like Elma and Montesano with. Uh, a very different situation than, you know, some of the large urban um, Puget Sound cities. And, and the idea that one policy approach is really going to fit in all of those just really falls apart when you start thinking about how it would apply in those variety of communities. And so just sort of putting that in front of folks who are thinking about statewide approaches to say, hey, you know, really we need to build in some ability for communities to develop approaches that really work for them. Um, and usually, you know, there's a lot of support for that. It just depends on one particular, you know, if somebody's uh, trying to make progress on a particular issue, they they have a, uh, a solution in mind and they're pushing towards that. And so, you know, there's frequently, you know, turbulence on the way there. But for the most part, um, most legislators understand that their communities are kind of unique and, and, you know, the one size really doesn't fit all. Moving into our seven priorities, let's talk about what these seven priorities are and uh, that we're going to focus on for cities in 2020. It is a long list, seven priorities. Uh, Let's start talking with um, infrastructure. And our cities are very familiar with their infrastructure needs and are focused over the last several years on full funding for the Public Works Trust Fund. Um, Again, in 2019, the legislature swept more money out of the Public Works Trust Fund. Uh, They didn't restore it like we had asked, and uh, they took further funding out of it. It was the first year in quite a long time that they left some money in the program um, for more traditional uh, applications for loans. But we're going to be again talking to the legislature about the importance of investing in infrastructure and how it really is um, the backbone of our state's economy and that it is time that they fully restore the Public Works Trust Fund. Again, that's one of those things that we're really maybe teeing more up for 2021 because they're not going to make likely large budget decisions this go-round. We want to get that set up for 2021 with the next big budget process. Another, uh, you know, related uh, topic a little bit is culverts, and that's a specific type of infrastructure that's essentially speaking to the um, means by which we cross streams and other things with our roads. Um, And you're familiar at this point with the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court held that the state of Washington was impeding a tribal treaty right uh, because they owned so many culverts that were blocking the um, movement of endangered salmon up and down the stream so that they could um, breed and, and recreate and be available for fishing and for other uses. Um, cities and counties have the same sorts of infrastructure, but we're not uh, subject to that lawsuit yet. Uh, and we've been under a multi-year effort to convince the state to have a broader vision on how they're going to address this problem. So they've got uh, like a $4 billion plus obligation just on the state side, but they could spend that entire $4 billion and really not get the fish very much further because uh, they will bump into city or county or privately owned culverts. So we really need a more strategic approach. Um, As Candace was saying, this is really a a building year on culverts again because they've already made the investment for the first biennium of uh, the state's obligation. This is uh, really going to probably come to a head in 2021 as they look to create permanent funding to address this uh, problem. So this is a year for us to keep the issue in front of legislators and to um, continue to build our uh, resources and data to establish the need. So for instance, this year we know we have 
over 185 um, city-owned culverts that are either up or downstream of barriers that the State Department of Transportation will correct or begin to correct in the next two years. And that's information we didn't have last year, and it's you know really shows the the challenge, right? Even the city of Bellingham alone, I think, has like 49 uh, culverts that are in the same streams that the state is fixing. Um, you know how they could be expected to address all of those without any assistance. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty much an impossibility. Uh, and then you look at even smaller communities. Um, there's really not uh, equity in terms of who has uh, these culverts to correct and who has the tax base to deal with it. So we really need the state to step up here. City fiscal health is um, an ongoing priority for AWC and cities around the state. And this session, we're really focused on um, talking about the need to revise the 1% property tax cap. There's a long history there, um, approved by voter initiative in uh, 2001, I think it was, uh, I-747, and um found unconstitutional and then put into place by the legislature. So we're getting close to 20 years of a 1% property tax cap. And we knew immediately that it was going to create a structural deficit in our funding and our ability as cities to meet the needs of our communities. And here we are again, um, uh, I'm going to do the math. It's like, what, 18, 19 years later? So I'm not good at math. Um, that we are still dealing with this. And it was an arbitrary cap then. It's an arbitrary cap now. And so there's a lot of interest among cities in finding a more reasonable cap. Um, most, most of the time we talk about lifting that cap to about 3% plus factors for growth um, and new development. So that'll be something we'll want to talk to legislators about quite a bit this session. Again, it's a tax vote. And as we mentioned in a campaign year, that can be a pretty unpopular action to take. But uh, I think there's a growing understanding in the legislature that um, it it's hampering cities in a way that's just become untenable for many of them. Um, and with that said, it's not a silver bullet to fixing all of our revenue challenges. Um, it, it does provide for modest growth to allow cities to better keep up with the cost of expenditures. But um, we need to look at other fiscal flexibility and fiscal opportunities along with that as part of the bigger city fiscal health package. So another priority of ours this year uh, is affordable housing. And that's been one that we've been working on um, really diligently for the last four or five years and had a lot of success in the last um, couple in getting uh, some significant resources from the state to be provided to local governments to help uh, cities address uh, your own specific challenges with your own specific approaches. And we're uh, continuing on that theme again this year, uh, really hoping to get an expansion of a, a tool uh, that allows cities to provide for a property tax exemption to promote um, multifamily development apartment buildings, uh, either market rate or even affordable. Um, and the ability to extend that um, in particular is important because we have a number of um, rent-controlled units right now that are going to age out of that program and then be subject to market forces. So we've been... Um, successful to date in providing for uh, more affordable units for people, and that might uh, go away if we can't get the legislature to expand that this year. Uh, so this is one that, you know, I think we have a little bit more hope that we may make some progress on this year specifically. And then uh, I think kind of consistent with that local control discussion that we were having earlier, can we get the state to provide revenue tools that can be accessed by city councils without having to go to the public vote? and really um, provide local elected officials with the ability to take the responsibility um, 
to make these decisions to address critical issues in their community and then stand to account to the voters um, for those decisions. So uh, specifically, there's an idea to allow uh, that kind of action on an optional uh, one-tenth of one-cent sales tax that would be used for affordable housing. It's been on the books for a number of years, and only a few communities have used it. Um, so we're working on that. Um, the multifamily tax exemption, as I mentioned, and then uh, we continue to expect we'll have discussions about things like accessory dwelling units and missing middle and alternative um, sort of soft density. And our approach is going to continue to be how do we encourage and provide incentives for cities who are by and large trying to do this already um, to do it in a way that their community can support and not have the state just step in and mandate a blanket approach. Transportation is something that everybody is talking about now, um, it, given the passage of Initiative 976, eliminating car tab fees for local governments and reducing the state's car tab to $30. It was on our list of priorities before passage of the initiative um, because cities have been talking about the fact that they're not able to keep up with their transportation needs. And many of them are experiencing even more pressures because the state's transportation system isn't keeping up. And we've heard more from more and more cities who are saying their local streets have become bypasses around state highways and the freeway uh, because those are just so congested. So they're really doing double duty um, as both local and um, regional thoroughfares. So we were already talking about the need for additional transportation resources and transportation revenue options um, before the initiative passed. With the initiative passing, that immediately um, would have eliminated $60 million a year for cities that impose a local car tab fee. So it just made the problem even more acute, um, as well as uh, impeding potentially the state's ability to continue providing some funding to local governments for transportation. So we're talking about local transportation funding options, and we'll have legislation to provide some new, again, hopefully councilmanic uh, revenue options. There was a study done by the Joint Transportation Commission earlier this, well, last year, last summer, and uh, it identified a $1 billion gap between our funding and our transportation needs at the city level. That's, that's just the city level. So it's pretty significant and something that we really need the legislature to take up. Um, they're kind of uh, likely to be a little bit frozen, perhaps high-centered on this topic, given the passage of the initiative and a lot of conversations that they need to have and prioritization that they need to take to figure out how to balance their transportation budget again. Um, they're going to have to cut a lot of projects potentially out of that and funding. So it's going to be a difficult conversation for them, and it may be a little bit challenging for us to get their attention on local transportation needs because of it. Well, from transportation, which is just such a global and huge issue, um, we have a behavioral health priority that is a little bit more discreet and specific, and this uh, deals with um, the ability for uh, cities to provide medically assisted treatment in city jails and uh, regional jails if you contract. Um, and the basic uh, issue there is uh, there was an interest uh, last year from the legislature to require medically assisted treatment in, in jails. And medically assisted treatment is a, a, a way to address folks who are um, suffering from opioid use disorder, getting them uh, uh, the appropriate treatment, which addresses some of their um, their cravings and puts them into a better position to accept uh, support and to start to work their way off of those drugs. 
Um, and the idea last year was that the state would just sort of mandate that this happen and good things would uh, flow forth. And of course, uh, you know, reality intruding, it was, uh, you know, the cities, uh, particularly smaller cities are operating on shoestring budgets, don't have the capacity to add a new expense onto their books. And, and also those uh, resources aren't available um, consistently all across the state. Uh, what we've heard and what we're going to advocate for is the cities would really like to be able to provide this. We certainly think it's the right thing to do. It's just a question of how are we going to pay for it and can we get access to the um, health care providers to provide that service uh, so that we're going to be working with the state to say, yeah, we'd like to do this. Let's figure out what it's going to cost and, and uh, budget it in so that it, we're not just trying to do it on a wish and a prayer. You know, our last priority that we've got on our list um for 2020 is economic development. And anytime we ask city officials, what's most important to you? What are you working on in your cities? Economic development comes up. And economic development takes a lot of different forms depending on your community, what your priorities are, um, what kind of development um, are you trying to encourage to come to your city. For the legislation, however, we're looking at trying to build the tools that are available to cities to support economic development by funding infrastructure. And that this year is really taking the form of pursuing tax increment financing, TIF. And for many years, we haven't really talked about this. Um, it's, a, it's a big challenge because traditional tax increment financing uses property tax growth to help fund uh, development projects. And in Washington state, that was deemed unconstitutional back in the mid 80s. Uh, there have been a couple of attempts to run constitutional amendments um, in the 90s that weren't successful. So we are um, kind of dusting that off and pursuing it again to allow for property tax based tax increment financing that would be used to fund publicly owned infrastructure that would support development. To do that, we do need to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot. So the, that's kind of the first step is asking the legislature to put that constitutional amendment before the voters. And that's and, a two-thirds vote in both chambers is, uh, is the threshold to get that done? That is correct. And then, uh, of course, a uh, majority vote of the voters of Washington. So it's no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> the nice thing is that this is one of those issues that doesn't really cross partisan lines so much. There's a lot of support across uh, the political parties to try to make progress on this, right? That's true. There is um, interest um, from both parties, and it, it does... Most everybody is in support of economic development. The case that we have to make to legislators and eventually to the voters is this isn't a handout for developers, that this truly is an investment in public infrastructure that benefits everybody and helps us grow our economy. So um, it's a, as Carl alluded to, it's a big lift. Um, this is a big challenge to do a constitutional amendment, but um, it won't happen if we don't try and if we don't get this before the legislature. So uh, this is uh, the first step and the first attempt in um, probably about 10 years to do you have, I'm just purely curious, do you have an example of a city that has used TIF or a project or TIF-like? There have been some TIF-light um, programs in the past. Uh, local revitalization financing, the LERF, um, catchy name, <laughs> that a number of cities took advantage of. It was more of a sales tax credit program um, that almost acted in some ways like a state grant uh, in, in 
providing funding for cities to do the kind of infrastructure that was needed for projects. So there are examples all over the state who've been able to take advantage of LERF and um, really generate a lot of uh, new jobs and development as a result. So we want to scale that up and use property tax instead of a sales tax credit. Kennewick's an example, right, where they sort of are a shining example of the sort of um, additional development that can come as a result of that public investment in the first place. Um, you know, the challenge with these sales tax-based models is it requires an investment from the state, which, you know, puts you right into the budget fight. Um, and so that's the sort of less preferred approach. But as a backup plan, given the challenges around the property tax, we're going to pursue both. Is that the We are going to pursue both and look at reopening the LERF program, um, local revitalization financing, to more projects. Again, that does compete directly with the state's budget priorities, so it's more challenging. The property tax-based TIF if we can get that um, approved by the voters and put that on the books, uh, would create new revenue um, as opposed to competing for existing state resources. Give us a little flavor of what's coming this session. Um, What are some key dates that we can remember and what are the legislative cutoff dates and why are they important? So January 13th, of course, right now is um, just nearly upon us, and that's the first day of session. And then probably the next most important key date is March 12th, which is the last day (laughs) of the legislative (laughs) session. So um, those are our bookends. And then there are a series of cutoff dates in between, and those cutoff dates are milestone deadlines for action to be taken on bills um, for them to continue progressing through the process. Um, You know, the quick reminder is bills have to make their way through each house. A bill that's introduced in the House has to pass the House, then it goes to the Senate, repeats the process, needs to pass the Senate, and then goes to the governor's desk. So there are some key cutoffs along the way. Um, Right now we just have a draft cutoff calendar. They won't finalize that until session starts and then they'll approve it. Um, But the first policy cutoff looks like it's gonna be around February 7th. Uh, The next big cutoff will be February 11th where fiscal bills will have to get out of their committees. The cutoff for the House of Origin um, mark is probably going to be around February 19th, and that's when bills have to get out of their first house where they were first introduced. And then again, that process repeats itself. The next series of cutoffs will come really fast right before the end of session, um, being a short session year. So it looks like February 28th will be a policy cutoff or thereabouts, March 2nd. will be the fiscal second fiscal policy cutoff. And then uh, there around March 6th will be the last day for bills to be considered in the opposite house. And then again, that March 12th deadline is the is sine die, the end of session. Um, so those are some key cutoff dates. Some other dates I'd remind our city officials about are um, CAD, City Action Days, Uh, January 28th and 29th. They can register now. We'll also be hosting a mayor's exchange in Olympia on February 13th. Um, And then one other date that's probably pretty key is February 19th because that's when um, the Revenue Forecast Council will release their revenue forecast, um, their quarterly revenue forecast. And that's often tied to the timing of when they release budget proposals. So um, somewhere around that Shortly thereafter, February 19th, we might expect to see the House roll out its supplemental budget. Um, They go first this year. 
followed by the Senate. So I'd keep an eye on that February 19th date too. To underscore uh, one of the points that Candace made, you know, if you look at January 13th to February 7th, and then I think the fiscal one is a couple of days after that, that's like three and a half weeks to get through all of the policy bills out of the first committee. So during short sessions, things start to move really, really fast. You know, uh, people always say, you know, if you're not pre-filed or you don't already have your bill scheduled for a hearing before session starts, you're really behind the eight ball. That's maybe not entirely true. They can usually squeeze something in, but they have to really want to. Um, and so, you know, for our purposes, we're all scrambling um, quite a lot during the early parts of a short session. And it's really helpful for us that our members understand that timeline because we need feedback on these bills. We need to hear how they affect um you know, cities across the state, and we don't have a whole lot of time uh, to collect that feedback, particularly in short sessions. Yeah, I would uh, tag on to that. The legislature doesn't take holiday breaks during the session. So they work through Martin Luther King Day and they work through President's Day. So um, we might be calling you and needing your help on one of those holidays. And uh, we know that's always tough, but keep that in mind. Their 60 days is a straight through 60 days. And they, um, in a short session, are more likely to work weekends. um, And they certainly are working those holidays. If a city official has an input on a bill, how can they get a hold of you or what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, they should always feel, feel free to contact us, reach out. Um, emailing is always fastest. We're pretty well connected during session. We are not in the office much, or at least it's um, intermittent at best. Uh, but they can always get a hold of us through AWC's main line too, if that's easiest for them. Um, our staff here are great about getting those calls routed to us. Um, but email's fastest. Yeah. You can respond to an email while you're in a hearing and you can't respond to a, a you know, a phone call in a hearing. Obviously, uh, I like to talk to our members any time they want to. Uh, but to Candace's point, you know, the quickest is the email. But the main thing is, you know, don't hesitate to reach out because we are only as effective as we, you know, can be with the support of our members. So it's really helpful. That's good info. You said the uh, pre-file bills are already dropping. And first of all, I want to go on to that term that we use a lot. What does drop mean? We like to say drop. It sounds kind of like dead. It sounds kind of like drop means it's gone. There's a really, really fancy, and it's not fancy at all, um, <laughs> wooden box that they they have to put their um, the final version of the bill with the signatures of the sponsors in, and they call it dropping it. And you have to do it by a certain time uh, every day to be on the next day's um, introductory sheet, which kind of releases it to the public. So that's the that's the kind of step in the process where a draft becomes a, a real proposal. And I saw that there are up to 118 dropped already. So does that mean we expect the flow of bills to be as high as they were last year? You know, that's an interesting question. Last year was a record year, and it was a long session. So that gives them more time to uh, drop more bills. And when you talk to legislators, particularly some in leadership, they um, are, I think, encouraging their members to be a little bit more um, selective about dropping bills so that we wouldn't necessarily have that record number in a short session. But uh, I also heard from some legislators last week, particularly new legislators who were, last year was their first first time they were doing this, first time they're going through a session. So for them, that's normal. That's Mm -hmm. a normal amount of bills. Um, And for the rest of us, it was a bit overwhelming. So I think it's a little bit up in the air what to expect uh, if we will see that same heavy load of bills. The bottom line, though, is they only have so many committee hearings, and those committee hearings are only so long. And so there's just a finite amount of time, and so thus a finite amount of bills that they can really get to. Right. And, you know, anything of any real 
consequence, and maybe that's overstating it, but any controversial bill takes some time to work through with the other parties who care about it, right? And so with that only three and a half weeks to get through policy, for instance, you know, if you're, um, you know, trying to come up right on the edge, you could be in a position where you can't get agreement on your bill to move it out of committee in terms of those deadlines. The other thing I would say that um, Candace would probably have this experience too, it feels like every year the leadership is saying, don't don't introduce a bunch of bills, and nobody ever seems to listen to it. So <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I would expect we'll probably see about the same amount as we always do. <laughs> Does AWC draft any bills? Definitely. Um, the process is, you know, there's a formal process, and uh, AWC drafts a lot of bill language. Um, maybe from the very beginning, we'll draft bill language, or we will draft amending language for a bill that perhaps we didn't draft in the first place. Uh, but a legislator has to introduce the bill. They have to take ownership of the bill. So we might um, draft it, come up with ideas for language, um, but there's a, a lot of process that goes into getting a bill dropped and introduced, um, but we're really engaged with that, particularly when it's our priority bills. Yeah, definitely. We are extremely involved in the language side of it. And to Candace's point, you know, officially the legislature is the one who introduced it. In addition to like, you know, having a, a brand new proposal coming out every year, for instance, this year, some of our housing priorities are things that were introduced last year and didn't make it across the finish line. So those bills are still alive uh, in the second year of a biennium. So in that case, we're looking at, you know, do we need to amend those bills? Is there any reason why we can't just put, you know, this year's language onto last year's bill and skip a few procedural steps? Because some of those that were, uh, for instance, passed the Senate but didn't pass the House are in uh, pretty far along in the process in the Senate and don't have to go through all those committees. So if we can use that vehicle to move it, we're kind of ahead of the game and we kind of get a head start. Um, so some of the, those considerations are, you know, go into whether or not you want to introduce a brand new bill. Maybe you get different sponsors or a different partisan mix on it. I mean, there's different right because reasons bills why you might can be it. revived within the same biennium. Mm -hmm. gotcha. Yeah, and then after the biennium, they all have to be reintroduced. They're all officially dead after the second year. And say that again. Does it pick up right where it left off? You can it goes to the last step of the previous house. So Senate bills that passed the Senate but didn't pass the House would go back to Senate rules and would need to be brought back to the floor and moved over to the House, but they wouldn't have to go through policy or fiscal committee. Candace, let's say I'm a city official and I want to get more involved in the legislative process. Um, where would I go or how would I go about coming to Olympia? What should I be prepared oh, well, for? Well, that would be great, first off. We love seeing our members come to Olympia. We love seeing them in town. Um, you know, you're always they're always welcome to give us a call and we can kind of walk them through the process. Our legislative bulletin is a great resource for city officials to know kind of what's the latest uh, news on issues facing cities. Uh, we've got some information on our website about coming to Olympia, but the legislative website, which is ledge.wa.gov, um, ledge being L-E-G, uh, <laughs> .wa.gov, is really um, pretty user-friendly, and they've got some great information on there about just basic things like where to park on Capitol Campus um, and how to find your way around. So that can be really helpful for somebody who's new here. Um, parking on campus is really challenging, actually. Um, and probably the first thing they should really do, though, is call their member's office, call their legislator's office, and set up a meeting, set up a series of meetings. Um, 
so you you know when it's best to catch them. Uh, you don't want to come all the way over to Olympia and not have an opportunity to talk to your legislator and get to know their legislative assistant. They'll help you get through some of those hurdles of what it's like to come over uh, to Olympia. So start there with the legislative assistant. Our website's got resources. The legislative website's got resources. And um, feel free to give us a call. We love to walk people through that process. Yeah, one thing that they should be uh, prepared for that is a little disconcerting for folks who are doing it for the first couple of times is it's very hard to get a lot of time with your legislators during sessions. So they they frequently schedule themselves out in 15-minute blocks back-to-back. Um, so it's really important, as Candace said, to call ahead and get on that schedule. And you might just um, you know steal yourself to the possibility that you can't get a formal meeting. Then you may be in a position where you're either walking them in between meetings and getting a couple of minutes to talk with them or pulling them out of a committee and talking in the hall. Uh, all of those are really valuable interactions, so definitely would not discourage you from doing it. Um, but it also is one of the reasons why we um, are always encouraging folks to build that relationship year-round because when they're not in session, you get a lot more time to spend with them. And if you can build that baseline and, and that relationship and their understanding of your interests and their interests uh, early on, you can kind of build on that in shorter increments during session. Don't let that um, scare you or dissuade you from coming down during session. However, it's critical that they hear from you on what um, you know these proposals will actually mean to your city, and that's really really valuable information for your legislators. Um, but just you know, be aware you'll have to be you know on point and quick and uh, get to the point because you're not going to have a lot of time. And I mentioned the legislative bulletin. We share information about issues and bills in that bulletin on a weekly basis. We also talk in there about opportunities to come testify. Mm -hmm. So we will tell you when there's a bill up for a hearing, and we are often looking for city officials who who are interested in that topic and want to testify. So that's another um, interesting way to get involved in the process. Yeah, and we can help uh, folks with you know, information on the context of where are the uh, where are the discussions on those topics and what are issues that might be worth highlighting. It's also just really helpful for them to share from their heart what, what the impacts of these would be in their communities. And um, so it can kind of go either way, but we're certainly help, uh, happy to help, you know, um, with talking points and that sort of assistance. I've got this fun predictions in 2020 section that we're going to finish up with. So just real quick, rapid fire, tell me what your predictions are going to be. City action days, will it get snowed out again? Yes or no? No. <laughs> no. No, okay. <laughs> that can't happen twice in a yeah, row. <laughs> that's like lightning striking twice. The first time ever, right? Yeah. 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 Mayor's exchange on February 13th. How many mayors will be there? Uh, 60. I should know this, but is that Valentine's Day? It's close. Right? No, it's February 14th is Valentine's <laughs> Day. It's, always, it's not like Thanksgiving that's on like the You better put that on your day. calendar to <laughs> yeah, send you your wife see, some um, flowers. Yeah, my wife's Prediction, how many you know? people? Uh, 75. All right. And we've got, um, how many umbrellas will AWC staff lose on the hill? Oh, countless. I'm from Washington. I don't use an umbrella. <laughs> okay, good answer. <laughs> I eventually track them all down most of the time. Okay, so zero. All right, here's my last prediction in 2020. Will it end on time? Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right, resounding yes on that one. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for meeting with me today. Thanks, yeah. Emma. Thank you. Thanks for listening. At AWC, our mission is to serve our members through advocacy, education, and services. As always, you can stay up to date on city news and legislative action on our website and social media channels. Visit wallcities.org to plug in. I'm Emma Shepard. I'll see you next time.